This episode of the This Week in XR podcast is brought to you by our friends at Zapper. Zapper's XR Pioneers Conference is back on October 11th for its third year. And once again, you can learn how to take your business from ordinary to extraordinary using immersive technologies. Zapper's free user conference brings together thousands of designers, developers, marketers, and strategists to take their work to the next level. They have a great conference lineup, including a This Week in XR special, where myself and Roni will be hosting a one-off panel featuring former head of XR at Disney, John Snotty, and Zapper CEO, Casper Thykier. We'll be covering the past, present, and future of the wonderful world of XR. Through real-world examples, we'll share how people are using XR to change the way they communicate across their marketing, packaging, learning, training, and development to drive better results. Discover how to take advantage of the XR tools of the future and propel your business in a new era of growth and engagement. Carving out just a little time in your day to tune in live will give you access to exclusive sessions, industry deep dives, workshops, and technical demonstrations, giving you access to some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the industry. Save your spot now for October 11th and register at zapper.com backslash XR-Pioneer. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz and Roni Abovitz for This Week in XR. It is Friday, September 22nd, 2023. Good to see you guys this morning. Good morning. Good fun week. Lots of fun stories to talk about. Interesting morning, guys. On many fronts. Yeah, you know it's going to be a good week when we just start the show basically when we're all <laughs> we're preparing for the show we're starting the show yeah so great guest today michael freeman uh from roni you'll love this company uh accu trucks uh accu trucks they make a ar headset for people with macular degeneration using a combination of software and custom optics uh, people whose vision is blurred in the middle and have peripheral vision, which is sort of how that disease progresses, can actually restore their vision. So it's kind of a wonderful magic trick for a giant, unserved and unseen, no pun intended, audience. Uh, but Roni, you wanted to jump in and talk about the Rolling Stone article about NFTs. Yeah. So, um, yeah, why don't we start with that? <laughs> This week, Rolling Stone, actually two things happened with Rolling Stone, but we'll start with the NFT one. Um, basically, the headline is your NFTs are actually finally totally worthless, <laughs> um, which seems like an interesting declaration because I think it's been sort of heading that direction. I will say one caveat. I think the art that linked itself to NFT, some of that's good. And if the art was valuable in its own right, independent of medium or, you know, it's just good digital art, I think that will still hold value. I think there's some great digital artists that shouldn't be tied to this, but there were so many scams and so much junk. But 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 Charlie and Ted, I wanted to get your guys' take because it reminds me of the early internet, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, where there's this bunch of like just dog food, pet vomit.com, and many of them were worthless, but a few figured out a business model, and those websites had a structure underneath them that turned into a real business. And I'm wondering, will NFTs or the idea of a non-fungible digital thing connected on a chain to some kind of value creating something will 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 that reemerge is it really really dead what do you guys think sure well as charlie knows cuz he's seen me do it part of my my uh my talks around the the world or the virtual world over the last couple of years is the beanie baby effect uh <laughs> and uh the fact that you know nfts are effectively another version of beanie babies now that being said there are still a few beanie babies that hold some degree of value never to the point of their insane fervor across you know this whole cultural moment where people thought that these things would be worth something uh and everybody's got sort of a little stash of beanie babies in their closet that you know are just sitting and effectively only worth maybe the price you got them from retail. I don't, but new things we've just learned about you. <laughs> the statue of Beanie yes, Babies. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, Beanie Babies still sell. There are still marketing deals out there. They're, you know, Marvel and, and Star Wars Beanie Babies at uh, airport toy stores and stuff. Hanging and out with the Cabbage them. Patch dolls. Yeah. But effectively, I just always kind of viewed NFTs as, as um, sort of digital Beanie Babies. That there would be some degree of value and some would break through, but eventually... The market would sort of crumble, and it's it's to me it's more of an effect of the overwhelming media sphere that we live in. That everyone's trying to grab your attention in certain ways, and it becomes these media moments. And then when those media moments fade away, most of the value that's associated with that 
fades away. So that's kind of my my take on it, Charlie. I don't know if you're in agreement well, or not. <clears throat> we haven't talked much about NFTs the past year, and I have to say I'm rather relieved because I've always <laughs> been a skeptic. I, I do think that NFTs and tokens got conflated. And having a token in a MetaMask wallet on your browser is an interesting idea, right? It, it's it's like having a subway pass or, you know, you just sort of walk in, you wave your badge and you're in. And, you know, that, that makes sense to me. Um, but the way it became conflated with art and collectibles and all sorts of other things, I agree with you, Ted, it became its own kind of crazy collectible market that did wasn't was only they were tethered to each other and nothing else yeah and then it, so. it, it intersected with these virtual lands at sort of the same period of time yeah same thing i think everything kind of had this conflated value but i think you know you're right i think the three of us would tend to agree that the idea of digital providence provenance means something the idea that it doesn't have to just be physical to actually associate value to it. And that's the core tenant behind it, which is why some of these things still value and the Beeple moment went mainstream. Yeah. And, you know, there was, it was, it was a real piece of art that someone could collect and then own and potentially resell <laughs> just digitally. Now you could have a counterfeit of that, of course, many counterfeits of that, and people could just put it up on the internet, which was where it got a little confusing. But the idea of owning the original digitally uh, does have some core understanding, you know, of where our, can, our could I, can I throw a counter to that? Cause yeah. I could, but very quickly on that, Ted, um, I think what's interesting is in our local Earth, not the whole universe, because the universe has more than we ever need as humans for forever. But in what we can gather in in our Earth sphere, there's a there's a finite set of resources. And, and I think value comes from some of that true scarcity. Digital really feels like infinite plenty. Um, anything we do to make it scarce is yep. fake. And I yep. think as soon as you had NFTs. You got folks like Midjourney coming along that are like, oh, I can mint any just infinite amount of JPEGs or whatever forever at like near fractional zero cost. So it just doesn't make sense, right? There's like one Mona Lisa, but I just can't infinitely replicate its physicality and its perfection. But digitally, there's a kind of sense of just infinite abundance. And I think that's a, that's a clash. And we try to create this mental impression that it's scarce, but it really isn't. And if you actually know anything about digital, none of it's scarce. Right. Um, and I think that's the flaw in this whole model. Yeah, I guess it's just humans attempt to make you believe that it's scarce, right? And that's, it, that was it the key. To a certain extent, and then it sort of doesn't work. Yeah. Well, I think what happened is like when the AI stuff started exploding, people are like, wait, I can make millions of images that are great in seconds. Why did I just spend... $80 million on that JPEG, you know, anyway. Yeah. It was crazy money. And that's the other problem with it is that it got conflated with the entire crypto craze. And so, you know, Web3 tokens, NFTs, uh, it was just a mess, very hard to understand and very hard to understand the numbers that were being appended to some of these things. People notwithstanding, you know, the you know, Charlie bit me video is not worth half right. a million dollars. <laughs> and all the wait, wait, Char- <laughs> crazy, crazy numbers for a period. Charlie, I wrote an article uh, about a year ago, 18 months ago, and, and I just very two seconds on it. I think what's what's really interesting is I called out a very particular board ape number 8817. I think this was April 22 and I wrote the article at the time it was worth more than three million dollars. I wonder an owner of 8817, you could reach out to the show. What is it worth today? Because I basically made a comparison. For $3 million, you can buy the world's best car and get a JPEG of it, or you could have one JPEG of an ape. And apparently someone decided to put $3 million in that one JPEG of an ape, which I think doesn't drive and isn't as cool as owning an Aston Martin Valkyrie. So I think it was all there in a nutshell. It would be pretty scary to think what that monkey is worth today. Uh, so, oh, by the way, something we also jumped on in the green room just before we jump into the news uh, <laughs> was I posted earlier this week uh, a new video made by Caleb Ward of Curious Refuge, which is a scene from a Star Wars something series movie. These are the guys who did the uh, Wes Anderson Star Wars AI fake trailer, fake trailers being probably the predominant narrative genre in uh, generative AI right now. But 
it is a fantastic uh you know fantastic piece of filmmaking uh that feels and looks very much like the star wars universe it's a little janky in places but i mean come on yeah. I, I mean it's, it's, it's close enough to fool you at first blush and that's what's so interesting about it and for those for our listeners that haven't seen this wes anderson parody of star wars if you're a wes anderson fan it is a piece of brilliance the idea and and it's the the best moment is when they go through the cast, you know, like they always do in the Wes Anderson movies. And it's this amazing cast: Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson, Owen Wilson as Darth Vader. It's just it's it, just great. Adrian Brody is a Wookiee. Yeah, it's just great. It, it's and and it's it's very much worth your time to watch it beyond just the technical aplomb of using these various AI tools. And one of the most more serious conversations about this is the kind of where does the copyright, if you're really creating something using AI tools, should you be able to have some ownership over that, right? Or is it just in the Wild West because you use AI tools versus other computer tools? Because you do have a manual hand in this. I mean, it is not just the AI creating a Wes Anderson parody on its own. There's human interaction to this at a, in a big scale. And that's kind of the interesting question. Hey, can I throw something out? I, I think this this film that you brought up, Charlie, is indicative of something much bigger i'm i'm actually like way deep in this and ted it probably is as well but i think the use of ai to create cinema with a mix of ai and people is going to be gigantic it's going oh, yeah. to change everything and it's going to take what you see these guys do five six years from now we're going to see like full-length feature films Agreed. that are amazing that look like they cost a hundred million and at the end of the decade we're going to see things that are as good as avatar but it was made by two kids in a garage and yeah. that's just going to change that is the final ult ultimate change to Hollywood, which liberates creators but blows up the system that Ted lives in right now. But it's going to be very interesting what happens. Uh, and does well, it get co-opted or framed or, or frozen? Mm -hmm. Who knows what's going to go on? Mm. It, it, it's an interest, interesting to think about, and it's good. It's really exciting. I'm leaning into it. Uh, everybody I talk to, my students, everybody is leaning into Gen AI, uh, could, cinematic AI right now. But uh, we had this moment with the iPhone where we were so excited that the tools of production had been democratized to the point that you could make a feature film with an iPhone. So 10 years later, how many feature films have been made with iPhones? A few, but not a lot. Yeah, yeah. Not many. So you, you see my point, right? What is scarce is not as it turns out is not necessarily the means of production. Now it's the person who wants to do it, right? Exactly. So now, but but I do think that there is a world of screenwriters and directors and maybe not existing directors, but someone who's in high school now is going to be the Steven Spielberg of cinematic AI. There is 100% probability of that happening. But, but I do think this is a little different or fundamentally different than just the iPhone moment is if you refer to it as, you know, the assistance that we have always used in artistic creation are getting better and better and better. It's a bit more like not just the iPhone, but think about the revolution of digital tools across all things movie and television making and game making um, have become so purveyant that they have completely taken over the industry, except for the opposite edge cage, which is maybe two or three filmmakers that still use some analog techniques and analog cameras to achieve their objective. The world of creationism completely changed and turned yes. into a digital use case. Yes, and I think but that... Can, can, go ahead, Randy. No, you go on, you go on Charlie. No, no, I was just going to say that I, I think that we are going to see, we're going to be buried in cinematic AI. And let's just call it cinematic media because, you know, calling it a movie or a streaming show or, you know, uh, social media, it, it's blurred together. Yeah. But here, here's, here's the real thing. There... The power law seems to always apply itself to democratic revolutions where there's an uneven distribution of talent. And what I mean by that is that the very, very great talent, the musicians we love, the directors at the top, the best writers, even if you give everyone access to the same tools, you're still going to see that power law. So what we're going to see is like some folks who were suppressed, who didn't have a voice, they'll rise to the top. But most of the people will be in the torso and the tail, like like 99.99% of the stuff won't be worth watching. Just like there's billions of videos on YouTube that nobody watches. But what you'll see is the kid in the garage who should be that next Spielberg or that next Lucas will emerge. Because now that kid, just 
this happened in music, right? The bedroom musician has effectively almost Abbey Road level tools. And we're seeing those bedroom musicians rise up and they own more of their own art. That That's the revolution, right? These, these individual artists are making a lot more than if they signed to a label. So imagine that's now going to happen. The indie music scene looks like the indie film scene are now doing Marvel level films. That's going to change. And that's going to be very interesting how that disrupts things. Yeah, we saw this with with other democratic tools generations ago, right? We saw this with what we refer to as the Blair Witch Effect, using VHS cameras to create horror that then became paranormal activity and became genres upon genres, right? We saw it with Steven Soderbergh uh, early on doing Sex, Lies, and Videotape with a DV camera. Um, so obviously, this is something I know quite a bit about because I was involved in this revolution in various stages. The AI version of this revolution uh, will be infinitely more powerful than all of those other tools combined. And more than red, kind of more than anything else, right? So we may be seeing, you know, the next YouTube moment, which it's hard to not even understand the breadth of that when you just say, what did YouTube do to culture? Right. The next one, while it may live in the, in the, the horizontal of YouTube, in the, in the container of YouTube, um, will be more important and powerful than potentially YouTube has been so far. Um, so it's pretty interesting stuff to watch and talk about. So, so two things. Let's, and then we'll get to the guest. I see that Michael Freeman, uh, the co-founder and CEO uh, of Acuturisks, is in the waiting room. So, uh, I wanted to mention something that was in the column today. And again, this is would be a whole episode, so uh, we can't get into it today. But I mean, there are a lot of things happening in AI across the big platforms. And it, it appears to me, and, and I'd love to get your hot take, that what we are headed toward is sort of uh, people are, you know, we thought once upon a time the next mobile computing platform or whatever was the metaverse or was going to be XR. But I think it may be these chatbots that are arising that are going to be our invisible digital assistants following us everywhere. And, you know, voice and, and text are going to become the next operating system. Well, the, the next little piece of this puzzle is there these things that were a little bit exotic and a little bit sort of, let's call them GitHub-y, are now sneaking their way into mainstream search and use case culture, right? So I think you mentioned the article, Charlie, the, the, the Google infrastructure where you can essentially allow, you know, you just give some permissions and then Bard sort of sneaks into your search, right? Um, I saw on the NFL games this weekend that Bing is kind of going mainstream with promoting their voice to chat uh, GPT via, via the OpenAI stuff as just an extension, you know, load up Bing on your phone and ask Bing where to get, you know, the best pizza. Um, so they're starting to normalize this, commercialize this, take this out of a weird, like, got to go to a browser, got to sign in, got to, you know, they're, they're making it normal. Right? And you know, the, and there was the next generation. there was news last week or the week before about Apple's uh, AI, yeah, uh, Ajax, Ajax yep. and this idea that Ajax may be coming for Siri. Which, thank God, uh, you know, they would finally, finally take advantage the of the thing. They, they put it in the middle of everything, and it still does nothing. So it would be so fantastic if that got upgraded, and then you could just see this competition arising between the platforms of which one, because that. If you really could have an assistant like that, it would be very, very sticky, uh, you know, sort of like your email address. Charlie, here, here's a question and, and for you, Ted. I, I think like Microsoft's permeated its new OS with AI everywhere. And, and the real question is, well, what if you don't want that? Like, what if I just want a basic computing experience with total control? I don't want you in my mm. everything. I don't want you crawling around my files and connected to your servers. And God knows what you're crawling around and taking back. Like, are we going to be subject to having to deal with AI when we don't want it, right? Because I yeah. think there's a, a subset, maybe it's a minority that may reject the evolution of AI and go, I, when I want it, it's there, but I don't want it crawling around. I think Windows permeating hmm. everything with AI, that, that was a big bet by Microsoft, but it, it makes me never want to use Windows again. I don't hmm. want them crawling through anything I have, yeah. right? I don't know how many people feel that way, but I just want like a computer that has like Word and PowerPoint. But now if I can't use mm. that, how many others are like of that same mindset where we want to either completely turn it off, cut that cord or go to some other system like a Linux or maybe Apple will take this approach. It's not there when you don't want it. Whereas the Microsoft one seems to be, it's built into Windows. Now they're going to make a ton of money that way. I think a lot of people are like, it's just the default switch. Dan Ariely showed that the default switch people don't turn off, but it feels like 
you know, like it, it just permeates and you sort of um, like when I drive a car, I'll give you guys an example. I don't want the assistive driving. Some people do, but I don't trust it. Not everyone trusts it. What if it was just there? Oh, well, you can't turn it off. What would you do? That's such a good, such a good point. Last story. Uh, Neuralink is about to start human testing, uh, which is, I guess they're going to uh, try and get paraplegics better control over uh, their computing experience, uh, which obviously would be a, a great, great thing. Uh, but their <clears throat> Neuralink, like a lot of Elon Musk's companies, uh, has, uh, let's say, some uh, issues have come up. Uh, so what do you guys think of uh, where this is going? Well, the aspirations are great. We've talked in the in the podcast before about, uh, I feel like I'm the Houdini debunker on this one. I, I'm I'm not convinced that this stuff really uh, does what they say it does, uh, which is the easiest thing is when you see a demo, ask them to close their eyes and still do the demo and things don't quite work out as well. There was some sub story stuff about this doing um, uh, testing with uh, chimpanzees, I believe, or, or lower apes that didn't quite work out very well. Um, but look, the aspirations of helping people that have certain debilities and severe disabilities um, give them a, a technological advantage and give them promise and hope is fantastic. Uh, the steps that we take, I mean, that's why we have the FDA in place that, you know, may or may not be catching up to this fast enough. But certainly worth the attempt, I think, just tread with care is probably the, the can, advice. Can, can I just, I'm going to make some very blunt comments because I I spent a lot of time in med tech. That's that's what I yeah. My that's 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 why I brought it up. Yeah, yeah. Very, very quickly, like there there are companies who've built a reputation over decades: Medtronic, Stryker, uh, Johnson and Johnson. You know who've learned through the years and have made mistakes, but like I've now understood what it means to do proper med tech uh, healthcare for people. Um, and there there are startups like some of the founders of Neuralink formed their own company called Precision Neuro, which is like a very straight with the middle, fully focused, non-BS kind of like, you know, brain-computer interface. And th there's been BCIs for decades, right, where really serious neuroscientists and neurosurgeons are building things that really help people. The question is, Neuralink becoming that? Or are they like, yeah, we're going to test stuff that's crazy on people that have no choice, and we're sort of using them like lab rats, which I hope, God forbid, is what they're not doing. So I, th I think it, you have to keep a cautious eye because the approach they've taken to date doesn't feel like the conservative med tech approach which is human life and safety and all that first right it doesn't seem to be that's where they're coming from yeah, but a, you know they may, maybe they are like we, here, we just don't. Oh, our guest michael freeman ceo of acutrix is here uh to talk about the oculens and the miraculous device that uh, his company is about to introduce this is a bit of a scoop for us guys, because uh, although this company is not a secret and people at Qualcomm and others in the industry know about it, it hasn't been well publicized, but they've uh, created an AR headset that is going to help um, tens of millions of people uh, who spend uh, their uh, retirement going blind uh, to see. Uh, so, Michael, welcome. And uh, it's a miraculous piece of technology. We were just talking about MedTech before you came in. So it's a great segue and uh, good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for having me and thank you for your guests being here. Yeah, we're building the uh, OcuLens for advanced macular degeneration. That is a central eye disease that affects about one in five senior citizens uh, can strike as early as 45 years old. And actually, there's, unfortunately, there's a juvenile form of macular degeneration that's called Stargardt's that affects people when they're about eight or nine or 10, which basically Yikes. leaves them with peripheral vision. But whatever they're looking at is gone. It'd be just like if you held your fist up to your eye, you can still see around. But whatever you're trying to see, you can't see. And so there's about uh, 19 million people in the United States that have this disease. There's about 13 million people that have the end stage of the disease that always ends in, uh, there's no medical cure for it. A bunch of the pharmaceuticals have been searching for years for a way to uh, stop the progression of the disease. And what they have found is that uh, if if they know there's a new bleed inside the eye, it's drusen, it's a bleed inside the eye that causes the uh, uh, damage to the cones and rods. 
And uh, so if they know you have a new bleed, uh, they can retard, they can, they can make the damage less, which is why our headset, once the patient takes it home and starts wearing it, to be able to read and to be able to see faces, play cards, do tasks, that kind of thing. Every time they take a visual field test in the headset, it sends it up to the HIPAA secured cloud. And then if it changes size or shape, we alert the doctor and then the doctor can pull up all the tests and say, oh, they've got a new bleed. If they come back in six months when uh, when their regularly scheduled appointment is, uh, the damage will all be done. If we get them in in 72 hours, we can give the anti-bed right. so Mike, shots. So, Michael, Michael, you were most of our listeners, probably the uh, vast majority are listening to this uh, on iTunes. So can uh, you hold up the headset? Uh, most people are not on, but I just want to describe it a little bit. So it, it's sort of HoloLens-ish. Uh, in that there's a, a shield and then two lenses. Does the glass... So t tell us a little bit about how this works. And then at the top, there are two outward-facing cameras. Is that what I'm seeing? Yes. So the headset has a total of seven cameras, two outward-facing cameras, two eye-tracking cameras, and then three sensor cameras. And so uh, we're using the Qualcomm XR2 chipset. We're the first augmented reality headset to come to market with the Qualcomm XR2 chipset. And then it uh, we have an optical engine, and the optical engine takes the image from a small micro display and then displays it on these lenses, which, as you can see, are see-through, which uh, it's not VR. VR, people would trip right. and fall over and, right. and break their hip, but ours is AR, so you can see through, you can see peripherally, and then you can also see uh, the image on the lens. And the headset has the highest resolution in the AR market at 5K, and it has the widest field of view. We're 60 degrees horizontally by 40 degrees vertically or 72 degrees diagonally. So it's got very high resolution, which helps with our patients uh, to have macular degeneration. And I bet some other people like developers and gamers are going to want to get a hold of this too. And uh, Michael, based on the size of the device, it looks like it's not really designed to sort of be out in the world every day, kind of going to the grocery store with it and stuff. But it's something you're going to wear in a home office, a home, a stable environment, uh, kind of on your couch, probably watching television or looking at a computer screen. That's probably its first um, its first use case, I presume. It's not it's not yeah. like a pair of glasses. It's a it's a headset. Yeah, it's a headset. It's not like a pair of glasses. However, we have two more patents filed. So we've got a total of 18 patents now. We've got two more patents filed, one which takes that headset down to half of that size. Got it. And then the other next one that takes the headset down to even half of that size. So we think it'll be like a pair of glasses with a, with a wide band on top. So we'll be there within about two years. Well, and it's interesting that you're, you're in this field. And I, I'm going to grab a piece of device from my, my long story history in this world to sort of bring you back in time. So if you recognize this, this was the original ODG device. Yeah. That company's no longer with us, but they were one of the yep. pioneers. Uh, and one of their big uh, verticals was the idea of helping people that are either losing their sight or have had some sort of accident or uh, dealing with macular degeneration in some way, shape or form, which, as you mentioned, there are many sort of versions of that and, and different levels of severity. Uh, and uh, this, this, this fight continues. Like the fact that you're doing this is admirable because it's it's a hard road to get it right and a hard road to to sort of deal with the the level of, of medical need. This is not a you know this is not a something you're doing for fun. This is something you're doing because people really need it. So it's it's great that you're driving. Forward. Yeah, thank you. The story is my father, who was a brigadier general in the Air Force, Richard C. Freeman, who was also an entrepreneur, owned three companies. A a uh, in the 80s, he bought an early catalog, uh, computer catalog company. And uh, out of that, we grew up building, my brother and I grew up building computers and working in the computer company. Ultimately, we became one of the largest suppliers to the state of California of computer products and several other states. That led us to invent mobile video. So if you go to Wikipedia, we're the people that invented mobile video. We won two Emmy Awards in 1994. For, uh, for developing mobile video for television. They didn't have to roll the big satellite trucks. They could take our little box out. Ultimately, we sold that to uh, Samsung. Uh, they shrunk it down, put it in, you know, uh, uh, they've got it in the cell phones. 
And uh, my father later on in life developed macular degeneration. And uh, he said, you know, we know so much about video. Let's, I think this, these headsets are going to be the key to developing something to uh, cure, uh, the, to work around the disease, not cure it, but work around it. And so the breakthrough came when we bought him a Curve TV in 2013. And there was a football game on. He walked up close to the to the uh, uh, television and he said, I still can't see the 50-yard line, but I can see everything else so much better. That gave us the clue, ah, we need to put the information on the peripheral. So what we do is we have the patient put the headset on. We do a visual field test, an edge perimeter test, and each eye takes about four or five minutes per eye. They see shooting stars, flashes of light. When they see them, they click a Bluetooth connect clicker. When they don't see them, the headset knows they can't see there. And uh, then when we turn on the real-world cameras, it puts the image on the lens of the headset at 60 frames a second, but within 13 milliseconds of every one of those 60 frames a second, we move all the pixels out, keep them in the same ratio and same proportion, so you still see a coherent image, but we move everything out so that nothing is, is shown in the area where they have their scotoma or defect, and that's the way they can, within five or 10 minutes, all of a sudden go, oh, hey, I can read now. So essentially, to, to simplify all that, you're you're bending all of that information, pulling it to the peripheral, and then bringing it back together on the headset, and that's and that's, that's how you achieve the idea of seeing the seeing what yeah. what we see with our with our eyes. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. So put yeah. another way, there's uh, a optical part of the solution, but there's also a software component to that as well. Correct. So we create a what we call a software marker. So the software knows where they can the edge of when they where they can see and can't see all around. And usually it's some sort of weird shaped circle. And uh, then we know where the edge of that is. And for reading, we just move things out left to right, rectilinearly, right? And so as they scan down a row of words, the words appear to hop out, but at 13 milliseconds, you can't really see them hopping out. But that's what they're doing. They're moving out of the way of the blind spot. And so our oldest patient in the clinical trials was 88 years old. Uh, we had him reading in three different languages within about uh, 10 minutes. Our youngest patient has been in the clinical trials, has been uh, 29 years old. She was a Stargardt's patient. She lost her eyesight at about nine years old, had, had been able to read when she was younger, but she was a PhD. She just got information, audio, auto, audibly, uh, and uh, she was able to read in about uh, a little bit longer, about 15 minutes, because her scotoma was extremely large. It actually encompassed the, the optical nerve, and so we could only put a few letters on each side. Most people, we can put like five to six, seven letters on each side of their scotoma where they can't see their blind spot, and with her, it was only three or four, but with her scanning down the row of words, Pretty soon she was able to see, she was able to watch a movie and actually looked at the man that brought her, her dad's friend and said, John, I've known you for years, but I didn't know what you look like. Now I know what you look like. So nice. it was very, wow. So nice. at, what, at what stage is the device now? You said you're doing clinical trials. Is it for sale? Does it have a price point? Does it have a, a distribution system? Like what, where, where are you as a company in terms of your, your evolution? Yeah, so where we are is we actually just bought a, uh, a manufacturing company, and so that's our subsidiary. It was a 26-year-old uh, aerospace defense and FDA-certified manufacturing company. So we built our first run under the FDA best manufacturing practices of prototypes, and that's what we're using for uh, clinical trials and investigative clinical trials and that kind of thing. Uh, we'll be out in the marketplace in Q1 next year. Uh, and we have uh, a, we have distributors. We have about 13 distributors. We also have distributors to the VA. And then we also have a number of um, uh, uh, universities that have their own clinics that have invited us to set up shop there. Some of them have, you know, two or three hundred thousand patients and several thousand of patients with, uh, you know, macular degeneration. So we do have a distribution network um, and uh uh, we'll be out in the marketplace in Q1 of next year. Michael, are you? Um, is this a 510k clearance, or is this like a, an IDE process? What What are you guys going through? Yeah, so we're we're actually doing clinical trials for physician acceptance and uh, to 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 present our clinical results. 
but we're a 510k exempt because of su substantial equivalence. And so uh, we're like in January, we'll uh, give the FDA our uh, pre-market notification and then uh, be selling, you know, in the first quarter of next year. So you think the FDA will take your data, grant you like a uh, a 510k clearance? Yes. And and is this a company you guys are you want to build as a standalone, or is this something you're trying to get like J and J or Alcon or one of those to to ultimately buy? Or I think that's you know usually the goal, and that's one of our goals. We did uh, during COVID when we were building our headset when in 2020. Uh, the supply, I call it the supply chain wreck. So we had the supply chain wreck and couldn't get any parts. And so we pivoted and we actually created an OR bot for surgeons. The surgeons had seen our headset and said, wow, this is great for patients, but what about me? I'm on my second and third neck surgery. I need a headset. And so we created the OR bot, which is a all new uh, 3D surgery visualization theater which starts out with our 12K microscope that picks up the image of the surgery in 3D and then either wirelessly transmits it to the headset or sends it by wire to the uh, monitor that's a 3D monitor that you do not need to wear 3D glasses to see. We put long skinny prism lenses on the uh, front of a uh, off-the-shelf 8K monitor and by that way with software and with the lenses, we're able to make the uh, monitor where you don't have to wear 3D glasses. So we've expanded into several other things besides just the headset for patients. We've also got a headset for surgeons that doesn't need the microscope. Michael, do you see yourself as like the hardware computing company or is there software and algorithms that you will port what you're doing to like, uh, let's say other companies building AR, VR today are spending three, four billion a quarter, um, you know, and, and are creating massive, like, you know, we got teams of 15, 20,000 people, like shrinking things down. Are you trying to ride that wave and move what you're doing to one of those things? Or you think like, no, it ought to be our configuration uh, in, in as a hardware company? Yeah. So everyone else in the industry so far has chosen uh, a waveguide. We didn't like waveguides. We didn't want to use a waveguide. And so we created our own optical engine. And we'll put that optical engine up against HoloLens, uh, Magic Leap, uh, Bionics, anybody. Uh, all of our surgeons think ours is the best cinematic quality. And it is the highest resolution of anything on the market at 5K. And so uh, we're looking to be the ubiquitous black box that other people uh, do software on. We're coming out with a SDK next year. We've already got uh, several parties interested in licensing and using uh, our headset for other medical applications. One of the companies is a company that has a pathology application. And so uh, we're, we're looking to have our headset be one of the predominant headsets uh, in the marketplace. So Michael, I just wanted to go back to the thread. You were telling the story of how you and your brother got interested in solving this problem because of his condition. So uh, did he live to see any part of the solution or when when did your father pass and how far along in the process were you when he died? We were far enough along that he had a headset that he wear to, to uh, ride his lawnmower and trim hedges and, you know, uh, 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 do emails and that kind of thing, but he didn't see the final. He passed away in 2016 after a heart surgery, but he told us, he said, if anything happens to me in this heart surgery, go see my uh, uh, retinal surgeon and tell him about this. So we went to see Dr. Thomas Finley of the retinal clinic in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, he remembered my father, and uh, we said, I've got a headset, and I want to show it to you. I promised my dad I would. And the funny story is he sat down, he looked at this headset, and he didn't say anything for about 10 minutes. And then he said, I'm in. Sign me up. I want to become a shareholder today. He said, <laughs> your dad told me he had this device that he could see, and I just thought he was had dementia. <laughs> I never imagined that something like this could actually exist. So he's the uh, chairman of our medical advisory board. We have about almost 50 medical advisors now 
primarily about 30 of them plus are in the ophthalmology field. And then we've expanded uh, to have other people, including Dr. Uh, Lionel Hunt from Cedar sinai in LA, who's a spine surgeon who's just come on board our medical advisory board. And so we're now, we now have a spine surgeon, a hand surgeon, uh, a pediatric surgeon, a uh, orthopedic surgeon. And so we're looking at using these uh, headsets for all kinds of medical use. And so, so there's, and right now we're talking about a headset that would help a surgeon yes. uh, do their work. But at, at the same time, we started the conversation talking about the OcuLens, which is right. actually for uh, people who suffer from AMD. So just yes. to clarify, so you made the OcuLens, but then because of your sort of place in the medical community, you shifted to another uh, problem that uh, you kind of came across, which was this ergonomic problem that that uh, surgeons were having uh, because of the microscope and the uh, tools. Yes. The tools weren't designed with their backs in mind. <laughs> and so they had this, so they immediately recognized that the machine you built to help the patients might also help them. Uh, yes. That's, that sounds like another great story. Yeah. It was, and it's that that product is called the OR lens. It's ninety five percent the same uh, headset, and it's about seventy five percent the same software. But uh, the headset for surgeons has to be deconstructible, so it could be sanitized and that kind of thing. And it so it's a little bit different. But uh, yes, they were uh, typically a surgeon has to look through the oculars of a standard opt optical microscope for hours at a time for a surgery. It causes neck strain, back strain. Virtually every one of the surgeons our medical advisory board have had some sort of problem because of the bad ergonomics of a standard optical microscope. And now they can sit back and, and actually move their shoulders, be comfortable. You know, binoculars, you, you use binoculars. If you move just a little bit, you lose the entire image. Well, that's the way the oculars are in a standard optical microscope. So these surgeons have to train the fine motor muscle skills to like not move even a fraction of an inch for hours and hours. It's a big strain on them. Now they can be free of that. They can wear the headset that either has the cameras on it to look down to the surgery site or use the headset in conjunction with the OR bot that actually picks up the surgery video feed and sends it wirelessly to the headset. And so we had about, uh, we debuted it in Frankfurt at the Frankfurt Retinal Conference in April of this year, that's hosted by uh, Dr. Uh, Eckhart, uh, who's the Klaus Eckhart, who's the top uh, or, uh, ophthalmology surgeon in the world, and uh, had about 600 surgeons sit down and look at it, and they were all just thrilled because of the, being able to break that dynamic or the unergonomic uh, aspect of the standard optical microscope. So, Michael, it Michael, sounds what like... Is it? Oh, sorry. Oh, go, go ahead, Ronnie. Go ahead. This guy's Michael. What, what does it weigh? Uh, the headset's about four hundred grams. Four hundred. Okay. Cool. Thanks. With a with a with a battery in it, we just had a meeting with uh, Qualcomm and uh, showed it to the Qualcomm uh, AR guys, and they were like, "Wow, this is really light. It's well balanced. Widest field of view. Uh, you know, the resolution's great. We we typically play Avatar, and you can see it in three D, right? So you put on the headset and you see Avatar in three D." And that's just to show the capabilities, but obviously it's got all the other 3D aspects as well. Right. I'm, I'm curious um, from the other side of the equation. So it sounds like things are going really well on the technology side, on the development side, mm -hmm. on the being able to source the right parts to build these high resolution devices. And you're finding these interesting verticals, both for patient and physician. Um, what are your challenges as a business? Do you have the right kind of funding and funding sources to achieve these objectives? Do you feel like there's any kind of uphill battles that you're fighting to get this stuff into the mainstream and finish, uh, finish the mission as it were? Just curious if you're, you know, you're feeling like you're, that's an easy road or a hard road. But it's been actually an easy road. 80% uh, of our investors are surgeons. And so every surgeon that sees this, I was like, I'm signing up because you know, the, I want this and my patients need it. And so for that reason, for the uh, application aspect, it was easy to get the surgeons on board. Uh, now we're uh, in a C round and we're with M.M. Dillon. And uh, so we're working on that, but we haven't had a problem. We've been well-funded and uh, we've got about uh, 
83 employees now and about uh, somewhere around 47 medical advisors that work, of course, just part-time, part-time for us. And uh, so we're going and blowing. Great. Yeah, Charlie mm-hmm. and I have talked for years about uh, the the underbelly of what virtual reality, augmented reality is really doing on an industrial level. Um, and, you know, medical would be an industrial, considered industrial field, um, sure. has had massive successes and doesn't get talked about enough. Like everybody's feeling like they're struggling with getting their products out to market. But in your world, in your vertical, uh, number one, you have doctors that want this product. So you're solving a problem and they're willing to invest in it. And we see this story duplicated over and over again in different industries where when there's a real problem to be solved, there is plenty of capital to go solve that problem. So that's great. Yes, thank you. Yep, that's been our case. Michael, do you have a pricing model yet or is that something you'll share at some point or yeah it's basically the headset for the patients is six thousand dollars and uh we expect to get some medicare reimbursement for that because of the in-home monitoring monitoring aspect where they where in real time the surgeons should see what's going on with their eyes and uh of course we've got uh uh, uh, the VA that you know will pay for it and and so uh that's that's basically our model and the price will come down over time you know we've got uh, uh we're we're first out when we get thousands of these out we can bring the price down a little and so you're gonna how many a month can you make or are you making yeah so we're not making uh we're, right now we're we're still in the pre uh, manufacturing mode will be in the manufacturing mode in December. And uh, with our facility, uh, with uh, 50 employees at the facility, the manufacturing facility in Colorado Springs called Spectrum, uh, we can probably do somewhere around 100 to 250 a day. Michael, a, a kind of a thought for you, because I, I, I came out of med tech and uh, biomedical engineering background um, and and did weird stuff that and had to break in a new category. <laughs> I, I would say um, this was with Mako Surgical, but I, I think with what you're yeah. doing, there's a lot of temptation and you get a lot of surgeons pulling you in a bunch of directions. I think the hardest thing to do is to find the one beachhead and get to like 10, 15% market share and don't do anything else. Um, and at that point, I think your valuation is going to go nonlinear. Like if you've got like five, six, initiatives like this one for macular this one for the or this one in spine this one ortho um at at the end of the day i think none of the companies are going to actually bite and acquire and i think investors follow the possibility 80 90 percent of medtech startups have to be acquired very few go public that's just the reality so Mm -hmm. you're probably looking at a at an acquisition and no one wants to be privately funded forever in medtech either um so i'd say if you just make one thing crack where you've got 10 15 percent market share you can go 10, 20 X valuation. Um, and that's the hardest thing to go, which is the one I'm just going to go all in on and, and perfect so well that eventually even the big guys go, we just can't drill down that deep. And they already have market, not just a few centers, but like I got 150 sites using it every day and growing. That's when you've got it. Like, and that's the hard, I would say from where you are, if you could figure that path and just go really, really deep, that is the, Everyone I know that's had success in medtech has done that. Um, and everyone I know that it's like sprayed across a portfolio until they're really big hasn't hasn't done it. I mean, that's my two cents of free advice on a Friday morning. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's great. That's what we intend to do. And actually, the surgeons, this is one aspect that is so great. A lot of the ophthalmology surgeons are not using hospitals anymore to get the revenue in. They just they have their own surgery centers right within their practice. And so our surgeons say, the hardest thing is I'm out in the front office seeing patients making money and I have to stop because a junior surgeon needs help in the surgery suite. I have to gown up. I have to wash up. I have to go in. I might spend two minutes, but I've wasted an hour right doing all that and then getting ungowned going back. Now they can just wear our headset and whatever the surgeon in the OR back there sees, they're going to see the exact same thing. It's Wi-Fi connected. It's 5G connected. So they can talk to each other. You can do fiducial markers. You can say, you know, make the incision right here or sew that one up and make another incision right here. And so this is something that they're all just, you know, uh, uh, gaga about is like not having to, uh, you know, actually be present in the surgery room to see what's going on. 
that is a uh, really, really, really interesting uh, development, uh, Michael. What um, we're, we're coming up on the end of the show, so uh, I just wanted to get sort of parting shot um, uh, on on the company and and where where you think we'll be when we're having this conversation with you uh, next year. I think we'll be far beyond where we are now. So we're still uh, uh, we're still pre-revenue. Our subsidiary is revenue, and so the combined companies are revenue positive and EBITDA positive, and uh, we're ready to take it and shoot for the moon uh, next year. So we'll be selling in the thousands, you know, per month, if not more, I believe. And so it sounds and sounds like you're gonna, as you uh, move forward, you're gonna start looking at other surgical specialties like spine, which we mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, are there applications? Do you think beyond uh, medical, or is medical just so huge at this point that uh, you you could keep growing in medical for years? We can keep growing in medical for years. And we've made a focus on that. However, we will have a headset to SDK for like gamers or for other enterprise applications. We don't want to develop all the software in the world. We want to make our headset available and our tools available for others to build on. And so that will be another vertical that we're going after. Uh, great. Well, uh, Michael, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, good luck with the launch. Uh, I guess that'll be at the beginning of next year. And yes. uh, I. I, I have no doubt that uh, people suffering from the illness will find the price uh, uh, low uh, so they can uh, regain uh, a lot of their uh, normal functioning. My, I, I think I, last time I talked to you, I think I told you that my uh, stepmother, uh, who married my father in like her like mid 80s, uh, <laughs> had, had AMD and she used to have to go and, and look at the TV, sit real close to the TV and look at it out of the corner of her eye. Yeah. And uh, and so I just you know think about what kind of relief this could have offered her. Uh, yeah. So uh, it it is a truly a great great use case for XR, and uh, one of those things that makes me feel like wow XR is really here to stay. I don't know if people are going to be walking around or driving wearing them, but for sure they're going to be everywhere. And uh, in this case, uh, you know, in the home with a loved one. So yeah. uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this has Appreciate important your time. trajectory. We're, we're we're this this is stuff that we like to talk about. It's important. It's great. Thank that's, you, Jen. That's our show this week, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Friday. Bye.